As we have uh, been following the prophet Jeremiah in his prophecies, we have seen the parallel between his day and our day in the state of his nation and the state of our nation. Uh, the crucial situation they were in and uh, the fact that Jeremiah's warning and how they responded uh, would uh, be such a crucial thing in whether or not God in his judgment was forced to go ahead and and deal harshly with the southern kingdom of Judah, to whom Jeremiah is addressing himself, the northern kingdom having already suffered the judgment of God and basically having been destroyed. One of the factors in any nation's departure from or return to the Lord is, is its leadership, the civil leadership, and another great factor is its religious leadership. And in this passage in the 23rd chapter, we have the subject dealt with of both false and true rulers and false and true prophets. First, we have the comparison of the false shepherds and the truth. In verse 1, woe unto the pastors or shepherds that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Now, these false shepherds or pastors were the rulers, the civil authority, the king, and those who surrounded him. In the Old Testament, when the term shepherd is used in a context like this, it's not speaking of ministers, but it's speaking of the civil authority. And... Uh, we have in the 22nd chapter, the previous chapter, what the civil authority was supposed to do as Jeremiah is told to go and address the king of Judah and give him a job description. In uh, Jeremiah 22, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, that sitteth upon the throne of David, thou and thy servants, and thy people that enter in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, Execute ye judgment and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, and do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. In other words, the responsibility of the civil authority was to see to it that justice was done, that the courts rendered justice, that the minority and the weak uh, were not uh, oppressed in any way, uh, to punish the evildoer and to reward the good, as it's put in Romans 13, and uh, that God had ordained government, in a sense, to be his ministers in this area. And in Romans 13, Paul says that when the government punishes an evildoer, as it's supposed to do, that it is a minister of God executing God's wrath on that evildoer, and that he's given it the power of the sword, the right to take life, in order to enforce this. We see what the shepherds were to do, the rulers. But notice what they did. Uh, back in Jeremiah chapter 23, in verse 1, it says, They destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. 
They didn't do what they were to do. They destroyed and scattered. The true shepherds, uh, we have a contrast or a comparison. In uh, verse 3 of chapter 23, God says, And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries whither I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. Because the nation had gone astray under its leadership, he would scatter them into various countries. Of course, he, we were told in our study last week that he was going to send them to Babylonia, where they would spend some 70 years in captivity, and then they would be brought back out. But he says that when he brings them out, that he himself, as the chief shepherd, will gather that remnant back. And he says in verse 4, I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. And we think, think of some of the governors that uh, God gave and some of the leadership when they first returned, such as Ezra and such as uh, uh, Joshua the high priest, or such as uh, Zechariah, men like this that God gave to the nation when they did come back. Zerubbabel, a civil authority, good shepherds. He contrasts the, the false and the true, and uh, he goes on and lets this lead into the coming of the great shepherd one day and his rule and his uh, reign. In verse Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute justice, judgment and justice in the earth. Uh, he's moved on here to speak of the Messiah and his coming. You notice he'll be an offspring of David. In verse 5, I will raise unto David a righteous branch. He will be a righteous branch. This is part of the description of his person. He'll be an offspring of David. He'll be a righteous branch. Uh, the word branch is one of the names, the proper names, that is given to the Messiah. And uh, it connotes not the branch of a tree per se, as uh, if it were a mere branch, but it connotes that <clears throat> although the house of David, when he comes, will be at a very low estate, uh, virtually a dead stump, that there will be this branch that will spring up out of that seemingly dead stump and will itself grow into a mighty tree. This will be the Messiah. The name is used a number of times in the Old Testament of the Messiah. One of the clearest passages is in Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 12. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. He shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord, the real temple of which the Old Testament temple was but 
a picture. The living temple made up of living stones, people dwelt in by God the Holy Spirit and thus made temples. He'll build the real temple comprised of living stones. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne. You notice anything unusual about that? A priest upon his throne? In the Old Testament, the office of prophet, priest, and king were separated. And the king was not to perform the functions of the priest. And on one occasion when Uzziah went into the house of the Lord to burn incense, he was confronted by the priest, and they said, It pertaineth not unto thee, O king, to burn incense. And immediately leprosy sprung up in his forward, and they pointed to him and told him that he was leprous, and he hasted to go out of the house of the Lord as they thrust him out. Uh, but in, the, in this man, the branch, these offices of prophet, priest, and king would be joined together. He would be a priest upon his throne. And, of course, that's been fulfilled in such a glorious way in that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity, but one who has suffered in all points like as we have. He's been tempted, and uh, he can succor those who are tempted. So uh, he is priest. He offered himself a sacrifice. He's our great mediator, and also he's a king as he sits at the right hand of God, holding the reins of the government of the universe and of his church. We have the description of his person. He's described as a righteous branch because he would be without sin. Righteousness is the perfect obedience which the law requires. How does the law of God read? The law of God says, Cursed is everyone that does not continually do all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Whosoever shall offend in one point of the law is guilty of all. That's why it says there's none righteous. That every man is a ruined sinner. There's none righteous. But this one would be righteous. A righteous branch, sinless. And of course, in the New Testament we're told that he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. We see the description of his person, and then we have the fruition of his reign. In verse 5 of Jeremiah 23, the last part, it says, And a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. His reign will be prosperous. Isaiah's way of putting that is, Of the increase of his government there will be no end. His kingdom is the one that will go on forever and will crush every other kingdom. Uh, the, his reign will be just. It says he will execute judgment and justice in the earth. His reign will be a saving reign, a delivering reign. In uh, the sixth verse, in his days Judah shall be saved. And Israel shall dwell safely. Now, Judah and Israel here are not just referring to the literal Judah, the nation of Judah, 
Because when the Messiah came, was Judah literally saved? Or did Judah literally become destroyed by the Roman armies? Here he's speaking of the true Israel. And that includes the Gentiles who believe as Abraham and who are called the children of Abraham. The fact that uh, this prophecy and the salvation being spoken of here is not a physical salvation or a national salvation is brought out in the prediction by Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. When John the Baptist was born, the Spirit of God came upon his father and he prophesied about his son, John the Baptist, the new babe. It says in verse 67 of Luke 1, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. How? From Rome? Let's read on. And hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets which have been since the world begun, and one of those was Jeremiah, and that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him, all the days of our life. And thou, child, meaning John the Baptist, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord, namely Jesus, to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. What kind of salvation? Salvation from the guilt of our sins, remission of their sins. As John went out and called men to repentance in the light of the coming king. And of course, as the king came to save. Notice uh, the title given to the king in connection with this saving back in Jeremiah chapter 23. The last phrase of verse 6. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. What is he saying? Whenever you find the Lord capitalized in your King James, the Hebrew word is Jehovah, or Yahweh, depending on how you supply the vowel pointing which the Hebrew didn't have. The Hebrew is just written in consonants. Let's say Jehovah. Righteousness, the Hebrew there is Zidkenu, Jehovah Zidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Now righteousness, as we've already said, is the perfect obedience which the, which the law requires. And we have no righteousness of our own. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But the designation given to him is that this is the name whereby he shall be called, the Lord, our righteousness. He would come and he would live a, a sinless life. And then that sinless record, that perfect obedience, 
would be made available to you and to me. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. But the Lord hath laid on him the branch, the iniquity of us all, says Isaiah. He would take our record, our sinful record, our unrighteousness, upon himself voluntarily. The Lord would lay it on him, but he would receive it voluntarily. It pleased the Lord to bruise him when thou shalt make his soul an offering for our sin. And so he not only would have a perfect life to be bestowed on us, a perfect record to be credited to us, but he would take our punishment upon himself, and thus the designation, the Lord, our righteousness. We sung a few minutes ago about Christ being the only foundation. Uh, and uh, the last verse, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And back in the book of Zechariah in the third chapter, there's a scene where Joshua the high priest stands before God and he's clad in filthy garments. And the Lord says, cause his filthy garments to pass away and clothe him in righteous garments. And the filthy rags are removed by an angel and he's clothed in a spotless white garment. That takes place concerning you and me. At a point in time when we become a Christian, the Lord becomes our righteousness. He becomes our perfect record. He becomes our spotless robe. That perfect life that he led is credited to me. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him, counted to him, credited to him for righteousness. Abraham was an unrighteous sinner, like you and like me. But through faith, through trust in God and his promise to forgive, through the Lamb, through Jesus, Abraham was reckoned righteous. And when we come to the branch and place our trust in him as the Lord our righteousness, upon a life I did not live, Upon a death, I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. When we do that, and we surrender to him as our king, invisibly, but very really, our filthy garments are removed, and in the sight of God, legally, we are clothed in the spotless garment that Christ wrought out in his obedience to his Father when he was on this earth. I have a perfect record. I have the Lord as my righteousness. Do you? That's his designation that he'd be called by. Have you called him by that? Have you done it truly? You remember the soldiers who dressed Jesus up in a purple robe and they put a crown on his head and they gave him a scepter, a reed, and they bowed before him and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. They did it in mockery. Oh, they gave him his true title. But it didn't come from the heart. What about it? Have you called him the Lord, my righteousness? 
Have you done it in mockery? Have you done it truly? Have you trusted him alone to save you, a sinner, rather than resting in your own righteousness? You remember Paul said that, uh, that I may win Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is according to the law, but that which is by faith of Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, a sheer gift. We see the, the contrast between the false shepherds and the true. Second, uh, the comparison of the false prophets and the true. In verse 9, he starts discussing the false prophets, and he tells how he himself, Jeremiah, feels about the false preachers of his day, the false teachers. Mine heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake, his sick at heart, of the calamity, the ruin that was coming upon the nation because of these false prophets and the fact that the nation was following their teaching, as well as its false rulers. Oh, what a time he had with these false prophets. He speaks of the result of their ministry in verse 10. For the land is full of adultery, adulterers, because of swearing the land mourneth. In verse 14, he speaks of the fact that they strengthen the hand of evildoers, and they themselves participate. Well, verse 11, for both prophet and priest are profane. Yea, in my house have I found their wickedness, saith the Lord. In verse 14, I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem an horrible thing. They commit adultery, spiritual adultery, as they were guilty of idolatry, physical adultery, as they were guilty of sensuality. And they walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers, that none doth return from his wickedness. So we see... Now, the result of their ministry, they, they, as a result of their ministry, uh, people walked in the lust of their flesh. They walked after false gods. Uh, they uh, walked on in their paths of iniquity, and none did turn. He says that none doth return from his wickedness. I was reading the great theologian, uh, John Murray's comments on World War II. And he said, How is it that the nation of Germany has come to such atrocious, aggressive crimes against mankind? How is it that Hitler has been allowed to come to leadership in this nation? He said, You know, it could only be that the moral fiber of the generality of the people has just absolutely been torn down. He said, How has that happened? And then he said, let's think of what happened in the universities and in the seminaries of Germany some 30 years previous. See, Germany is where the higher criticism of the Bible began to originate from. Form Geschichte, the, what's called form criticism, and all of the attendant evils of higher criticism where uh, we came up with pseudo-Christianity. It spread from there to the seminaries of our country, and we're reaping the fruit of it too now. Uh, like prophet, like people. That's what was happening. 
Where did they get their message from? The origin of their message in verse 16. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. A vision of their own heart. Doesn't mean they weren't deceived by it. Some of them were. Some of them knew they were lying. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can know it? And uh, the deceitfulness of their own heart deceive them and others. And uh, again, uh, occasionally they were under the impulse of what the scriptures call a lying spirit where God would allow Satan to send a lying spirit to these who had not followed the truth, and they would be led further into untruth by demonic influence, by the lying spirit that would impress on their minds certain things. They spoke a vision of their own heart. The Lord had not sent them, verse 21, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. In other words, do you mean to say that they're men in the pulpit, that God didn't send, and yet they're there? And they claimed and perhaps experienced dreams as the medium of revelation, verse 25. I have heard what the prophets said, they prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. Now, Jeremiah doesn't say that God never revealed himself through a dream. But what he is saying, that a dream must never be placed on the level with the word of God, the written, God-breathed scriptures. And we try every claim of revelation by the revelation that we have in scripture. It needs testing. He takes a very careful approach. The... Content of their message. How can you spot a false prophet? What will he say? Will he appear with horns and a red tail? Verse 17. Here's their message. And they say still unto them that despise me. The Lord hath said, Ye shall have peace. And they say unto everyone that walketh after the imaginations of his own heart, no evil shall come unto you. What do they say? They cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They say to men who despise God, who walk after the imaginations of their own heart, contrary to the written word of God and the commandments of God, they say to those men, peace, peace, no evil shall come to you. How do you spot a false prophet? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in commenting on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, Beware of false prophets. They come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing. They won't appear to be false teachers. By their fruits you shall know them. What does that mean, he says? Does that mean their teaching or their lives? He says you can't separate the two. The teaching will bear fruit in the life. And it's by both. But you won't be able to spot them so much by what they say. They won't say so many wrong things. It's by what they don't say, by what they leave out. What do they leave out? He said, there's no straight gate and no narrow way. Jesus had just gotten through saying, straight is the gate 
Narrow is the way that leads unto life. That's that narrow way of holiness. Not that we're saved by our holiness, but that the saved man, the man who has the Lord as his righteousness, it produces holiness. And holiness is the path that leads to heaven. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 13. There's no straight gate. There's no narrow way, no repentance, no path of holiness about the false teacher's teaching. Or rather, they cry peace, peace to those who walk the broad way and go through the wide gate that leads to destruction. Let me give you a modern instance of this. It comes, interestingly enough, from medical circles rather than the circles of the ministry. You've heard me quote on occasion from the pulpit Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She's done 20 years of investigation into death and dying, thanatology. And uh, she's done studies of how people feel when they find out they're going to die. They have some terminal illness. And the different stages they go through of anger and resentment and, and uh, hatred of God and depression and... Uh, and then as they begin to adjust to it and so on, she traced all this and has done some good work in that area. But here recently, we've had a whole a different approach to it. And we begin, begin to cross over from studying how a person feels as he approaches death to what takes place upon death and after death. Here's a recently published book. Life After Life by Raymond Moody, making quite an impression, was reproduced in condensed version in Reader's Digest recently. Raymond Moody, an M.D., who became interested in the reports of people who supposedly had died or had had near-death experiences and then had come back to life. They'd been pronounced clinically dead, maybe, but then a few minutes later, a little time later, they come back to life, and they report an experience, many of them, not all of them, but many of them. And after interviewing a number of these, he drew up kind of a model, not that any one of them had all of these experiences, but fitting them all together, you kind of come up with a model. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote the foreword to the book. Uh, here's his description of what takes place. Here's a model of what takes place at the moment of death. The Bible doesn't tell you, does it? Or the Bible says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for the Christian, or in hell, Dives lift up his eyes in torments. That's what happens at the moment of death if we're not Christian. But his model of what takes place upon death. A man is dying. As he reaches the point of greatest physical distress, he hears himself pronounced dead by his doctor. He begins to hear an uncomfortable noise, a loud ringing or buzzing. At the same time, feels himself moving very rapidly through a dark tunnel. After this, he suddenly finds himself outside of his own physical body, but still in the immediate physical environment, and he sees his own body from a distance, as though he is a spectator. He watches the resuscitation attempt. After a while, he collects himself and becomes more accustomed to this odd condition. He notices he still has a body, but of a very different nature and with very different powers from the physical body that he has left behind. Soon other things begin to happen. Others come to meet him and to help him. 
He glimpses the spirits of relatives and friends who've already died. And a loving, warm spirit of a kind he has never encountered before, a being of light, appears before him. This being asks him a question, non-verbally, to make him evaluate his life and helps him along by showing him a panoramic, instantaneous playback of the major events of his life. He finds that uh, he has to go back to earth. He's not allowed to cross the boundary line. He approaches a boundary line, which apparently is the boundary line between earth and the life beyond, but he has to return and go back. He's overwhelmed with intense feelings of joy and love and peace. Somehow he reunites with his physical body and lives. Later he tries to tell others, but they don't understand. This being of light, Moody says, uh, in reference to this evaluation, <clears throat> uh, incidentally, the being of life is identified differently by different people. If they were Christians, well, they would refer to the being of life, the being of light is surely it's Jesus Christ. If they were Jews, they might refer to him as an angel, all or many seeing this being of light. A man who had no religious uh, beliefs at all referred to him as a being of light. The question that is directed to him by the being of light is, what have you done with your life to show me? And uh, what have you done with your life that is sufficient? The being, all seem to agree, does not direct the question to them to accuse or to threaten them, for they still feel the total love and acceptance coming from the light, no matter what their answer may be. What is that? Is that peace? Peace? When there is no peace? They feel total acceptance? I wonder what the, incidentally in the latter part of the book, he compares uh, the experiences of those he's interviewed with some things in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and then he compares it with the Apostle Paul seeing a being of light on the road to Damascus, and then he compares it with several other things like Plato's death and things of this nature. I wonder what's the source of that kind of teaching and research. Well, someone's done a little research into his background, Dr. Moody's background, and Dr. Ross's, Kubler-Ross's involvement. And they found uh, an interesting third party uh, by the name of Dr. Raymond Moody. Uh, excuse me, by the name of Dr. Uh, Mr. Robert Monroe, who is a pioneer researcher of out-of-the-body experiences called OBEs since the early 1960s. He's written a book, Journeys Out of the Body. He runs an organization near the University of Virginia called M5000. The sole function of this organization is to facilitate people having out-of-the-body experiences. And on a weekend, using tape recorders and drugs and whatever, he will give you an out-of-the-body experience for $175. And... Uh, he learned how to use technology to produce this. But he learned this from the spirit world, the other side. He would get into an out-of-the-body state at night 
and he would talk with various beings of light which tutored him on the technology of eliciting out-of-the-body experiences in other people. He's been involved in direct spiritist contact. Now, the connection between him and the other two, Kubler-Ross serves on the board of advisors, for instance, for M5000. She has occasionally refers clients to him. She has herself undergone the training twice, the out-of-body experiences. Um, Kubler-Ross told an audience in 1976 of 2,300 people, Last night, I was visited by Salem, my spirit guide, and two of his companions, Anka and Willie. They were with us until three o'clock in the morning. We talked, laughed, and sang together. They spoke and touched me with the most incredible love and tenderness imaginable. This was the highlight of my life. At a commentator, this is being done in a magazine called Counterfeits Alert, the research. And the researcher says, you notice right off that what she's dealing with is what the Bible calls trafficking with familiar spirits, necromancy, mediumship, and condemns and forbids. He uh, says, uh, notice also <coughs> that... Uh, We're not really dealing with people who have died. We're dealing with people who have had an out-of-the-body experience. Uh, and uh, despite the claims that are being made, these are not people who've died. They are people who seemed at the time to be dying. Dying is not the same thing as being dead. We haven't heard a report from one who was necessarily really dead as to what happened, you see. And uh, uh, the other angles to this thing, we're told that Satan clothes himself as an angel of light. If you read books on demonology, she says this is a, he says it's a characteristic we can readily discern in the standard spiritist refrains on love, joy, and peace. Uh, these are eerily echoed by Kubler-Ross and Moody. And think of what a stake the devil has in this. To the extent that he can establish conditions which anesthetize the mind against the piercing reality of death as curse and judgment, he effectively seals people off from God and for the, from the gospel. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any of the beasts of the field. And uh, he said to the woman, Did God say you should not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the servant, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. He says it becomes more and more evident that people like Monroe, Moody, and Kubler-Ross are very available and influential pawns in a cosmic chess game. Very solemn. The true prophet, on the other hand, speaks from God. The result of his speaking 
is that people turn from their sins. Verse 22. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil ways and from the evil of their doings. So there's a distinction between true prophecy and false prophecy. In verse 28, The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell the dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? This dream, when you place it alongside of the revelation of God, what is the chaff to the wheat? You can distinguish the two. This is looks like wheat, but it's false, it's light. It's worthless. This has sustenance. This feeds the soul, the revelation from God. What is the chaff to the wheat? We can distinguish it by its content. Try the spirits. Believe not every spirit, says John in 1 John 3, 4. Try the spirits. Many false prophets have gone out in the world. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. In other words, every spirit that does not confess the person and work of Jesus, that there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, is not of God. There's the test. And uh, by the effects. Does it turn a man from his sin, or does it wed him to his sin while it comforts him? There's the test. The conclusion, you know what? There's a reproduction of the characteristics of chaff and wheat in our own lives according to how we respond, whether we respond to the true word of God or whether we respond to the lies of those around us. As we respond, so we uh, reproduce the likeness. Blessed is the man says God, that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor seateth in the seat of scornful. It says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither. But the ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. You reproduce in your own character the likeness of which message you respond to. Which are we? That's the great question. Are we chaff or are we wheat? Not only the reproduction, the examination of every teaching by the Word of God. That's a great lesson. Every claim. We don't care how many scientific associations may come with it. We don't care how many PhDs it carries. We have a book. And by this book we try every teaching. To the word and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The examination of everything. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Finally, the appropriation of Christ as our righteousness. If we're chaff, can we become wheat? We can become a new creation. If we'll come to Jesus Christ and make him our righteousness, take him as the Lord, my righteousness. And then we have peace. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, 
my beauty are my glorious dress. Miss flaming worlds in these arrayed, I shall with joy lift up my head. Have you done that? Are you clothed in Jesus' blood, his death, 